0: So last week, on our first message on the book of Daniel, we covered Daniel chapters 1 through 3. And we looked at several themes. We looked at um, a main theme that the book Daniel is a book of worship, it's a how to manual. It teaches us what to do when everything goes wrong. We worship. Why do we worship? God is so good and so big and so powerful that he is able to take your pain and suffering and from it, make something good. We talked about the theme in the book of Daniel of suffering. Daniel opens with tears and it closes with hope and tears. We said that when it feels like you're all alone, are you really alone? No. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And Daniel and his three friends captive in a foreign land found that to be most true and comforting in their deepest hour of need. Is our God the kind of person who is so humble that he will even lower himself to be with you in your experience of suffering? Yes. We talked about the theme of trust. Can you trust God when he takes everything from you? Yes. We talked about faithfulness under pressure. Are you under pressure in your relationships or at your job or under pressure by temptation? God is able to strengthen you and help you to act in his righteousness no matter how much pressure is on you. Cry out to him for help as Daniel and his three friends did and he will help you. Today, We're going to add a further theme, the theme of repentance. And this is embodied as chapters one through three rise and reach their crescendo in chapter four. They're all about Daniel and his three friends and their interaction with Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar get to his breaking point. Then we're going to see another king who reaches a very, very low point, and he just doesn't get it. And then finally, we're going to go into chapter six to uh, a fourth king, a third king, and we're going to see his response to the supernatural events where God speaks to him um, and God intervenes in Daniel's yet another hour of need. So in chapters four through six, we mainly examine the similarities and differences between the three kings we will get to know each of these three kings personally. As a bonus, we'll touch on a fourth king in chapter seven, whose kingdom is different than these three. But without further ado, the first of our three kings, Nebuchadnezzar. To me, the first four chapters of the book of Daniel give me great hope. First, we see that the suffering that Daniel and his three friends experience under King Nebuchadnezzar teaches them that they are not alone and that God is able to help them no matter how bad it seems. And we saw Nebuchadnezzar and we found out that he has more than a little bit of an anger problem. We learned that he has basically two moods, angry and afraid. And his anger has two gears. There's first gear, or what I would call way too angry, with his face flushed red, and overdrive, or what the Bible calls filled with rage, which I call so filled with demons of anger that if you looked into his eyes, you would probably fall down and start crying. What did Nebuchadnezzar do when he got angry at you? He ripped your arms and legs off and bulldozed your house. Or he threw you into a giant furnace of fire that was so hot that the people who threw you in even died. Nebuchadnezzar is like a fiery furnace with his super crazy anger issues. What was it that made King Nebuchadnezzar so angry? Remember? In chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar was about to kill every counselor and advisor in his entire kingdom because they couldn't tell him what he had recently dreamed. In chapter 3, he throws people into a superheated, fiery furnace because they won't bow down to a giant statue of himself. If you think those reasons for getting enraged are a little irrational, you're right. Why did Nebuchadnezzar get so angry? Because Nebuchadnezzar had demons of anger goading him on and because he gave in to them. Do you? we're going to find out that only God was able to rescue King Nebuchadnezzar from his anger problem. And God can rescue you from yours. And in chapter 4, which we are about to read, we're going to see again that Nebuchadnezzar also had an incredible pride problem. In fact, it was a supernaturally bad pride problem. And of course, so do I. And so do you. We might just not know it yet. We saw Nebuchadnezzar had a pride problem when the prophet Daniel looked him in the eye and said, you are the head of gold. Can we get the slide of the frightening statue up? So Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It was a dream of this big statue or image or idol of a man and it had a golden head, and silver, and then um, bronze, and then iron, and iron and clay. Big statue, Daniel interpreted to him that it was a dream from God that had a meaning about the future. And as Daniel was saying that, he looked Nebuchadnezzar in the eye and he said, you are the head of gold. Would that go to his head a little bit? Well, go figure. So what does he do? He goes out and he builds a massive golden statue as tall as a six-story building. And he commands every leader and representative in his entire empire to come and bow down to the image. Daniel's friends don't do it. He gives them another chance. Hmm. God is working on Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He's getting a little more lenient in his rage problem. Daniel's friends don't do it. He gives them another chance. They tell him, our God is able to save us, but even if he does not, O king, we will not bow down to your image. If leading the entire known world in worship to an idol wasn't a bad enough sin, to that sin, Nebuchadnezzar adds, throwing God's people into a fiery furnace. What happens? God intervenes. In this one, he comes down from heaven like a man and stands beside them in the fire. Naturally, Nebuchadnezzar freaks out. That's his other emotion. Well, I would have freaked out too. And in response to this extraordinary deliverance, Nebuchadnezzar softens a little more in his attitude towards the God of gods and the Lord of kings, Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar is a very religious person and he is very devoted to his idols, but this causes him to lose his religion and begin to have faith in the real God. At the end of chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar almost worships God. He makes a proclamation that if anyone says a word against the God of these three men, can we get the image of the fiery furnace and Jesus standing beside them? He makes a proclamation that if anyone says a word against the God of these three men, he's going to rip their arms off and bulldoze their house. What great faith. It would not be an exaggeration to say that for as many chances as God had given Nebuchadnezzar to repent and humble himself before God and listen to the prophets God sent to him, Nebuchadnezzar had not yet become a Christian. Now, in chapter four, we are about to have great hope about how much God loves us. Because the life of Nebuchadnezzar is really not so much about who Nebuchadnezzar is, but about who God is and how he treats Nebuchadnezzar. We've talked a lot about Nebuchadnezzar's sins. He is a super vicious, super demonically angry, super violent guy. He's like no mercy on steroids. His pride reaches to the sky. It's like as high as the heavens. He, more than probably any other living man at the time, would be like God himself. That's the theme of chapter four, we'll see. But God's mercy is the overarching and dominant theme. And we're going to see that it is the mercy of God that led him to repentance. God's mercy for Nebuchadnezzar is one of the greatest mercies that anyone has ever shown anyone. If God is this merciful to a guy like that, can anything separate you from the love of God? Can life or death? Can your mistakes separate you from the love of God? Can anyone else do anything to you that makes you unlovable? God is not only able to love you in a way that redeems your life. But he does love you. He loves you just as much as he loved Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 4. <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar, two all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. That's a nice greeting. King Nebuchadnezzar is sending the world a letter. That must have been very expensive. Think about the postage. If you have to mail things by horsemen and the man hours and the papyrus or leather or whatever they wrote on the scribes, he would have had to pay a big staff a lot of money to, to do this for him. This is a very deliberate action, sending a message to everybody in the entire empire. You didn't do that every day. Nebuchadnezzar thinks what he's about to say is really important. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. I hope this one isn't going to end like chapter 2 did when he decided to kill them all. Chapter 1. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me the interpretation. Do you think he's getting angry already? We'll see. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, ah, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold, A tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds far from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O King. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached them hundreds of years later, if they ever existed, there's a good chance they were right there and Nebuchadnezzar built them. He had built the rest of Babylon. It It was was the the greatest greatest city city on the planet. Gorgeous, strong, with some of the thick, with thicker walls than you might even think possible or necessary to defend it strongest of all metals known to man with the wall above it it had water it had uh, food and gardens and cattle they had everything they needed to withstand a siege if the tide of war ever turned against them and they weren't the ones out conquering nebuchadnezzar who history tells us it's nebuchadnezzar the ii um, he was instrumental in overthrowing the previous assyrian empire And now here he is, having built the great Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest figures, men and kings in history. Here he is in in the greatest part of the entire city in his palace. There were actually two palaces right next to each other. And he could look out over the city, look down on it. And he said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, 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 majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Remember in chapter one, the fineness of the king's food. Remember the tables filled with the delicacies of the known world, all gathered on one table with wine of such high quality that I wish I could taste it, but I can't afford that. You shall be made to eat cow food. And seven periods of time, long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among all the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords, my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. This is different language, isn't it? It's not, and I made myself even more great and built myself up. It looks like there's a change of heart here. It's what we call repentance. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the high point, the the crescendo of these four chapters. We've seen God's dealings with his people who were idolaters, they loved sin, they loved doing their own thing, going their own way. Their hearts were full of evil like all the time. For generations, they had despised, worse, not even read the Ten Commandments. They, they had loved every kind of pride, of oppression to the poor, of sexual immorality, of idol, even the temple of God in Jerusalem was filled with idols. God's wonderful and astonishing patience with it, which every one of us have personally known seemed like it was on pause. And God who is the righteous judge of all flesh poured out his wrath like a bowl being poured out and Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar an evil king no question about it whom God had raised up to do according to his righteous will everything God does is right all his ways are just and those who walk in proud who walked in pride Jerusalem Judah their inhabitants he humbled Daniel and his three friends were taken from their parents. They were taken from their homes in the year 605 BC. They were probably devout followers of the Lord before they went to Babylon. What they did in Babylon was probably the continuation of their first oh, 15 or so years of their life of, of walking according to his ways in the midst of a wicked culture like ours. And when they were under pressure, they cried out to God and he came through for them. He did not take them out of trouble. They were still in exile and shame, but God raised them up and put the crown of the mark of his love for them on their foreheads. And they were known by his name and God helped them in their distress. We saw Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two, his dream of uh, the statue. Could we pull that one up, the image of the statue? Daniel interpreted the dream when he was called in and because God gave him special mercy at his prayer request. Daniel went in and explained that it was a dream representing the future, four future kingdoms, one current, Nebuchadnezzar and his empire, the head of gold, and some kingdoms that would follow, we said. The next one was the Medes and the Persians, who we're going to see in chapter six, overthrew the Babylonian empire, that the Israelites who were in exile were so afraid, had kind of ruined God's plan for their lives. No, this was well within God's plan. It was all in his pocket. God had no problem using pagan kings. In fact, he's even redeeming the pagan king. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly all that we asked or imagined. So pray for our leaders. Pray for God's mercy on his people when we are exposed to suffering, trial, oppression, and temptation. We looked at uh, Daniel's three friends in their hour of testing. Let's look at the fiery furnace slide, please. Nebuchadnezzar goes out and he builds a giant statue, probably of himself, and he calls representatives of the known world to bow down to it. Daniel's friends don't do it. Could we get the slide of the, the fiery furnace up on the PowerPoint? Good, thank you. And God intervened again when they cried out to him for mercy. And it it appears that the Lord Jesus himself came down like a man and stood with them in the fire. They still went into the fire. Counsel he receives, he can't handle this, this conviction of the Holy Spirit. He's too puffed up with pride. It takes God's mercy, God's patience a year to wear out and his judgment, oh, but this is not like the judgment poured out on Israel or the judgment about to be poured out on the king that will come after Nebuchadnezzar in chapter five. This judgment is a very merciful thing. It was very merciful what God did. He took everything, he took everything Nebuchadnezzar is and was and had done and ripped it away from him and Nebuchadnezzar fell down and became like a, a cow or like a goat or like a dog. Even the, There's even a text in one of the secular historians that says that he went through a period of insanity. Like, it's amazing they would record that about their own king, but the Lord has recorded it. And so for seven periods of time, he does what animals do. Just like, walk around mooing or barking or whatever. He's totally insane. But during that time, God provides food for him. Somehow, while he's out there among the animals, God makes him able to get enough nourishment out of such things as grass. If you know anything about the digestive process and what the human body is able to digest, um, I don't know if grass is a euphemism for grain or something like that Um, but but if it was just grass then god's even specially made him able to get nourishment out of that god provided for him he didn't die of exposure or or hypothermia or overheating or or sunstroke he didn't die of dehydration during this time god preserved his life and there he was in the most utter humiliation i don't imagine he was well dressed without being too graphic, our Lord does it. Nebuchadnezzar repented, right? Kind of, that would probably be a misnomer. Daniel said, this is going to happen to you until you know, okay, let's take your IQ, I don't know what your IQ is, 132, 120, whatever, let's lower it like a few dozen points. Now your IQ is like, cow. Your intelligence, your linguistic uh, articulation will get you no greater than the point of saying something eloquent like, oh, That's how smart Nebuchadnezzar has become. Remember, he was brilliant. To rule an empire like this, you have to be way above average in multiple areas of intelligence, like social intelligence, although he had a little bit of an anger issue, which sort of affects society a little bit. But he certainly was very wise in how he conquered kingdoms and brought in the the children of the, the people who were next in line to become king and made them his advisors and gave them position in his kingdom. Brilliant political strategist. Um, he had the knowledge and wisdom of architecture and art and, and military strategy and military uh, theory. Um, Nebuch- Nebuchadnezzar had built a city that was not just a big city or a powerful city or a strong city, and oh, it was strong. I can't remember how thick the historian said its walls was, but I want to say like 27 feet or something. You could look that up. Um, These are walls like as wide as as a big room, like a big room, right? Like why are walls that thick? Like what kind of battering ram gets through that? This place is impregnable and that's not it. This was the cultural center of at least this half of the planet. The 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 libraries and the the educators and the scholars that were gathered to babylon this was like he had gathered the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of the ancients before him and he'd gathered it all into one grand sort of capital of the world one kind of giant tower of babel so to speak he's like the tower of babel in the tower of babel he is now utterly reduced his iq is risen and claws like, and he's a pretty good person. He musters up his faith and he thinks, you know, I've done evil, I think I'll repent now. Isn't that how you came to the faith? No, it's not. You are deceived. You came to the faith, like we think Nebuchadnezzar came to the faith. God made Nebuchadnezzar repent. God opened his mind when he really had no mind left in him. God opened his mind to understand the scriptures like he did for all of us. He opened his mind to understand the word of the prophet, the word of the prophecy and the dream given to him, the word of conviction of sin and the call to repentance. God did all of that for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar only opened his mouth to praise God after he was first supernaturally enlightened and given special revelation that God is who He says He is, the theologians may have told you that special revelation is this, and that's it. and things like the Holy Spirit don't you know you can't uh, you can't receive messages from God. all of us received one primary message from God, and after that, uh, hundreds to thousands to hundreds of thousands of them, not like the scripture. We base our faith on the scriptures. But the scriptures come to us by the Holy Spirit through the church. And Nebuchadnezzar received power in the Holy Spirit to believe that God is greater than him. For me, when I was going through a time in my life um, from 2001 to 2005, when I was, I kinda couldn't get past all these doubts I had about God. I realized that it was because I wasn't willing to do the will of God. And the breaking point was when God opened my eyes to understand that he loved me. And I remember sitting on a friend's couch, all by myself, reading a book about God's amazing grace called What's So Amazing About Grace. After having heard a couple of sermons, It was a sermon series on the prodigal son, which might be better named the prodigal or extravagant father. Extravagant in his grace. And as the preacher had preached the sermon series over the previous few days, they had a painting. Um, See it in your mind with me. It was a painting of the father embracing the filthy son, he smelled like pigs. I don't know how much this rich father's clothes were worth, but I guarantee you they all just got ruined. And he ran to him. His fancy sandals probably fell off as he ran to him, and he embraced him. And I'd looked at that painting that whole week, and there, as I wept on uh, somebody else's couch all by myself, um, it was that... The kind of weeping where you don't just cry, um, you bawl, and your nose runs. And you're crying so hard that like the tears and everything else doesn't even get cleaned up in time. And it's just, you're just sort of a puddle. And I was supernaturally enlightened that God loves me as I am. And my mind was racing as I wept. And I was like, God loves me. God loves me. And I had never really gotten that like a father loves a son or like a father should love a son or a daughter. I had never really gotten it that deeply before or known God as father like that before. And in that moment, I thought, well, I better make sure he really loves me. So my mind was racing with all of the worst things I had ever done. And I kind of sputtered them out through tears and thought through them because I knew he sees what is in darkness and I knew he could see my thoughts. And, And I let him see everything that I had hidden from others for many years, all of it. And it was pretty raw and disgusting and gross and incredibly embarrassing. And I laid it all out before the Lord and the Holy Spirit brought to my mind the memory of that picture of the father embracing the son. And I was overcome and I wept, but my weeping changed. And in those moments, I came to know that God is a God who loves me and who is out to heal me and who is out to build me up. Those years had been some years of significant personal loss and disappointment for me. And out of that, I knew the God who has mercy on the wicked. And I was deeply humbled. Although I had to be humbled much more and probably still will be. God is not done with us. We see in Daniel, and since we're out of time, we'll have to continue with chapters five and six later. We see that everything God does is right. Whether it looks like judgment to you or it looks like mercy to you. If it's to the Christian, I guarantee you, it's mercy. You might think God has rejected you and left you alone, but he has determined from the past, he has predestined you to be the precious recipient of his mercy. You can't out-sin God's mercy, but you are called to repentance. It is God who gives you the repentance that leads to life, and we are utterly dependent on God to have mercy on us. I apply this to my life by, when I'm overcome by thoughts and temptations, my prayer life often looks like, God, I can't even like resist this temptation. I can't even resist these ideas of pride and how I'm a pretty good person and all that, you know, rubbish like Paul says. And, And I say, you're gonna have to do this, I can't. And that is a starting point to faith or rather, God brings us there, and then we just say it. Our God is the God of mercy. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there's no one like you. We've never known anyone who is loving like you. There's never been another whose kindness exceeded yours. And we say in faith that though we don't understand some of our hardships, we know that your hand is is not too short nor your power too limited to save, you are able to reach down from heaven and to keep us in the hollow of your hand. And we know that even now we are in your hand and that you will satisfy us with good things and that you will save us from our pride, from our anger, from all of our sin, and that you will transform us and bring us one day into your presence in fullness of joy. So we are asking now that you would sanctify us and daily give us the repentance that leads to life, not just eternal life. We're asking for the abundant life here and now. So, oh, Father, please pour out your Holy Spirit on us so that you would become greater and we would become less because you deserve nothing less. In the mighty name of Jesus, our King, who has brought us together under one head, even Christ. Amen.